Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Claire Maldarelli. And I'm Sarah Shardash. Welcome to 2020. We've made it. It's the future. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. And isn't 2020 just off to a great start? Oh, we're having a great, great time. But that's not what this podcast is about. No politics. Nope. No No news. No world news. This is just a pleasant, fluffy void where we talk about weird things. And a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. What I'm about to say may sound like bad news, but it's actually great news. So Weirdest Thing will not be back next week. We will be back two weeks from now with a new episode. And we are switching to a fortnightly schedule, if you will. That's once every two weeks. And why? Well, as I mentioned before on Weirdest Thing, this podcast is something we do in addition to our regular jobs at Popular Science. And it really is a labor of love. And we do love to do it. And we love all of our listeners. But it's a lot of work. And in thinking about how we can make 2020 the best year ever for Weirdest Thing, we decided that just slowing down a little bit and giving ourselves more time to lovingly craft these episodes for you, in addition to all the other amazing things we make and do at Popular Science, would be for the best for everyone. So we're really excited to you know take advantage of that little bit of extra breathing room to make Weirdest Thing as great as it's always been and even better. And uh, we hope that you will stick with us. And, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So I'm assuming you'll be so fond of us. (laughs) Yes. Yes. A whole extra week fonder. And with that, let's get into the show. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, scrolling through Twitter over the holidays, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, my fact, your tease, please. My fact is about animals choosing when they want to get pregnant. I love that. Same. 
Love that for them. Mm-hmm. 2020 is the year that we all start taking care of ourselves, including the animals. <laughs> Hashtag self-care. Yeah. <laughs> your body, your choice. Claire, how about your teas? Yes, I would like to talk about what the chainsaw and childbirth in the 18th century have in common. Oh, no. What don't they have in common? <laughs> I don't have 18th century childbirth in my garage. <laughs> um, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, my tease is a lot of the health data we love collecting today would not exist if not for a man who spent a ton of time sitting in a chair and also weighing all of his poop. Oh, wow. That wasn't where I thought that was ending. I love (laughs) analyzing my health data. (laughs) I know. The more I learned about this one, Claire, the more I knew you would love it. Oh, boy. Um, so should should I start with my yeah yes, poop chart man? Okay, great. So this is the story of Santorio Santorio, the Italian physician so nice they named him twice. He was born in 1561, and he was a contemporary and friend of Galileo Galilei, because a lot of it was <laughs> very, no creativity. <laughs> yeah, for those lasty lasties. Um, no, but I think I think it was a fairly common in this period for Italian families to like give you a first name that honored your family surname. You had a lot of Centorio Centorios and Galileo Galileis running around, in this case, together as pals. So he was always uh, obsessed with figuring out how to measure the human body. He was really like the original quantified self guy. Wow. Claire's eyes just (laughs) wide. (laughs) Claire's hero. Yeah. An OG, really. So he is credited for inventing a few devices for measuring different things. He's credited often with inventing the wind gauge and the water current meter. And he was also the first physician to implement the use of a pulse reading device, though some people say that Galileo had the actual idea for the concept. And it is a very Galilean device. It's you would take a a pendulum and you would either use different pendulums with different lengths of strings or you would like use a system for knotting the string to change the length and you would wait until it matched up with the patient's heartbeat rate and then you would know based on the length of the string how many pulses that was a minute. Couldn't you just, why can't you just put your count, finger on Why can't you just count yes, the beats? You could, but it, well, it was about, um, it was also about like tracking rhythm and like changes. Oh, so it was almost pulse. like a like an EKG, like the OG. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, that's so generous to them, though. Like, they could have just counted them. Yeah. You have to um, start somewhere, I guess. <laughs> and uh, he also wrote about Arab physicians using thermometers in medicine, and then he is often credited with both perfecting and popularizing their use. Because up until that point, at least in uh, Western medicine, and to some extent in, in medicine around the world, there just wasn't a lot of quantification. Even schools of thought that involved really examining patients, which was not the case in all medicine. I, you know, we've talked about one weirdest thing before about how, like, for, there were many years and cultures and periods of, of medical thought where, like, you just studied kind of abstract concepts and then applied those to your patients. And, you know, the doctors who were like tasting urine were always kind of the like change makers. They were like, maybe we actually need to well, actually know the, the urine was kind of a way to avoid looking at the patient. Right. We, yeah. Because that's so much yeah. better than looking at the patient. <laughs> yeah. We have a whole episode about the people who tasted pee to examine their patients. But anyway, so this was like, first of all, physicians were just starting to want to 
personally examine their patients. And there really was not a system in place for like quantifying anything. It was all still very Hippocrates era, talking about the balancing of humors, but in a very like abstract way. And so Santorio Santorio, it's not like he was totally throwing out that antiquated theory of medicine. He still believed in humors, but he was like, well, if we want to balance them, we have to know how many of them there are. <laughs> Gotta count those You need humors. to know how many bloods and phlegms. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, he just, like, really loved figuring out how to better measure things. But his ultimate tool wasn't one we regularly use today, at least in the way he did. And thank goodness, because for 30 years, he spent as much time as possible sitting in a chair that was rigged up to a balance so he could weigh himself constantly. It was like the original Fitbit, but for a man who didn't walk. <laughs> Wait, he just sat Wait, in So it was a like scale. a chair that was... Yeah, I have a picture. So he was just basically sitting in a giant scale. I'll put this picture on popside.com slash weird. Wow. So he's basically like, yeah, it is just like a chair suspended and then, wow. I love that he has this little meal here in front of him. Yeah, we'll get into that. That's important. Wait, so he never <laughs> so left he's the like, chair. He's he, like weighing himself as he eats. He he didn't like live his entire life for thirty years in the chair, but he did. Looks like quite the studio <laughs> apartment in there. <laughs> they do say that he spent like as many waking hours as he could sitting here, so that he could get like constant reads on his weight because scales had been invented during like the neolithic period for weighing quantities of stuff but they were only just starting to use them to weigh humans because if you think about it like the weight you were wasn't really something anybody thought about for most of human history because like you were either eating enough or you were dead yeah. And if you were able to eat so much that you were overweight, good for you. That was that was really the general sentiment yeah. for most of human history. Because you had so much money. If you could eat if you could eat yes. enough to be overweight for most of human history, you were raking in the dough. Yeah, exactly. So like relatively speaking, your health was probably great. I mean, even if it was terrible, the people around you who were smaller were dying even younger than you were because they yeah. didn't have enough to eat and they didn't have money and they had to work themselves to death. So yeah, really the the connection between weight and health was just like not a thing for most of human history. Uh, like I said, you either were getting enough or you were not. The first diets for weight loss were only written about by physicians in the 18th century, and they weren't really popular until the 19th century. We've talked about consumptive chic and Lord Byron's diet on previous episodes. And those were really like, that was the beginning of people wanting to be thin for cosmetic purposes, at least at like a global level. I'm sure there were always pockets of places where it was chicer to be smaller. But in general, people, you know, wanted to eat as much as possible and show that they had the money to do so. Yeah. So scales it was, for it was humans. sexy to be. Well, to plump. be. Yeah. Plump and pale. Because yeah. it meant you were hanging out inside eating. Yeah. So doctors were definitely not, like, had no reason to weigh people because, like. That's kind of wild. What does that have about. to do with anything? Yeah, it is really crazy because now we, you know, for a while we kind of put too much stock in how much people weighed. Yeah, I literally got woken up in the hospital in the middle of the night to be weighed. <laughs> it was apparently so crucial. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he was really crafting the first, like, experimental system for being able to keep tabs on your weight for health reasons. And he published his findings in 1614. 
Also, just one, I found a, a note from his description of the device, and he said that the steel yard, meaning like the thing it's suspended from, is suspended from the beams above the dining room in a hidden place because of the nobles, as it renders the room less appealing, and because of the ignoramuses to whom all unusual things appear ridiculous. So, so he acknowledged he that what he was doing was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> he acknowledged it was unusual. And if you thought it was ridiculous, you were an ignoramus. But yeah, he he wanted it to be something that like people could use in their homes. It had like in his mind a very like discreet design. I love that because it's still hanging from the ceiling. Like it's just <laughs> <Yeah>. suspended seat. <laughs> but um it would hover just above the floor and one of his concepts for like widespread use was that you could calibrate it so that it would hit the floor when you'd eaten the right amount of food. Oh my god. So, I mean that completely <laughs> misunderstands like nutrition, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, and I just love the idea of someone like slowly sinking and then hear, <laughs> hearing the clunk and being like forks down. So his big takeaway from the 30 years he spent constantly weighing himself and according to some sources he like, you know, he would weigh himself before and after eating, he would weigh himself when he woke up in the morning. Some sources say he would weigh himself after having sex. Okay. He just wanted what? to get as many measurements as possible. He didn't know what humors he may have lost oh during the carnal act, I wow. guess. And so his takeaway was that what you put out didn't equal what you put in. He found that, you know, his urine and feces on average weighed less than the food and drink he consumed. I think the number he landed on was that for every eight pounds of food he consumed, there were only three pounds of excrement. So, yes, by the way, he also separately weighed his his feces and urine. I mean, that's just scientific. Right. Mm. So he was trying to calculate, like, what happens to the food. So what did he think happened to the the missing five pounds? So, yeah, that's a great question, Sarah. He actually came up with a term for it. It was the uh, perspiratio insensibilis. Uh, <laughs> Wait, did he factor in his sweat? Too? I was just going to say yeah. that. Oh, that he measured perspir- everything that came yeah. out. So actually, yes, he also measured the sweat. Like anything that came off of his body right. or out of it. So was the three pounds... Is that just his poop and pee or is that like everything? It was everything. Wow. Interesting. Everything that he was able to measure. So eight pounds for three so pounds. Where right? where were the five pounds going though? He yeah. can't have been gaining five pounds. A well, day. so <laughs> I mean maybe he could, I don't know, but Well, but when you think about it, like you're not when you like eat a pound of kale, that's not like a pound of poop that comes out of your body. What he yes. was doing was like the first ever basal metabolic experiment. Yeah. But I will get into that in a second. So, yes, the perspiratio insensibilis was basically like the hidden perspiration, the insensible perspiration. Wow. That's beautiful. And so he thought it was a, an imperceptible excretion of moisture <laughs> through which the body rids itself of harmful and polluting matter through the pores of the skin. I mean, he's not wrong, right? Because like you couldn't measure – like you – sweat without realizing it right and then there's like you know the the co2 you breathe out and so he was recognizing that this was all going somewhere and it wasn't just like shooting through your body (laughs) into poop and he also noted that the ratio would fluctuate based on other aspects of health on your sleep on your environment from person to person so he is considered like the first physician to experiment on basal metabolic rate, which we now know is just the energy it takes to maintain your body while you're at rest. And it's actually 60 to 75 percent of our daily calorie expenditure is just sitting 
yeah being alive i love that so what he was recognizing was that your body is taking in the energy of this food and you know using it in ways that don't just like come out (laughs) your butt and yeah you know now we know that basal metabolic rate varies really widely if you have more lean body mass it means that it takes more energy because you know takes your body more energy to power and lift muscle than it does for it to just like maintain fat but we also know that it varies between people even if they have the same amount of lean body mass so we still have a lot to learn about it but back in the day this lasty lasty named italian man was doing some pioneering work by just sitting down. I love this because I've all, like I'm skeptical of how accurate his scale was, but like I feel like it was Sophie who told us that during Thanksgiving she and her family oh, all have a competition <laughs> to see who can gain the most weight during dinner, <laughs> which I just think is hysterical because like I guess I don't know I think it's funny to think about the fact that like whatever poundage of food you eat like temporarily. Yeah, it's just, just there inside it's in your you. stomach. It's like yeah. when you carry water on a hike and you like drink the water, you like make you you're feel like still you're making a load heavier, but you are still Whoa. carrying it. Wow, I have never <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> I know. I think about it every time I go hiking. Oh my god, that's wild. Now that we have taken this idea of like personal health data quantification and run with it, you know, there are a lot of people who think a lot about their energy expenditure versus their caloric intake. I mean, I definitely do, but it's important to remember that most of the calories that you need in a day are just calories you would need no matter what you were doing. And it's actually there there's a lot of research on the fact that like people who are trying to lose weight and who add in exercise often add in like more calories than they actually need to support that exercise, and that's why the weight loss isn't successful. But the counterpoint to that is that, you know, there are a lot of diet mindsets that make you feel like you have to earn your calories, like you have to burn them off. And, you know, just sit and live in burns 75 percent of, yeah. of your calories. Your, so your brain burns lots of calories. Yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. So, you know, it's important to remember that if weight loss is a health or wellness goal of yours, that making sure you're actually taking in a deficit is is what's key not just adding more physical activity but counterpoint like don't obsess about burning off all the calories you eat because like your brain is burning yeah it's burning yeah the reality is that people don't lose weight by exercising which is good it sounds like bad news because it's like ah like i'm getting all this body mass by exercising which means then you burn more calories sitting around think it yeah it's all good Love that even if you lose zero pounds exercising it's still good for you. Yeah. Yes. That was, that was That's the good news. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more facts. Okay, we're back. And Claire, why don't you tell us your facts? Yes, I would love to. Okay, so like I said earlier, I would like to make the connection between the chainsaw and childbirth. Now, when I was researching this topic and I found this fact, I was like, I actually have never used a chainsaw <laughs> in my life. So, Did you pick one up um, for research? I, I Google imaged it <laughs> just to be sure I knew what I was talking about and it was correct. So if you haven't seen, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> or you don't log wood for a living, you can Google image it. 
it works fine. But yeah, so the chainsaw, if you didn't know, are these mechanized saws and they have rows of really sharp teeth that rotate and carefully and precisely slice through things. Those things today are trees and lumber and firewood, uh, stuff like that. But originally, as it turns out, those things were bone and flesh. Fun. Yeah. I'm really worried about where this is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back in the day, we're talking late 18th century, doctors didn't really have a lot of tools, tech, and medicine like we do now. So childbirth, well, even today, I would not call it a really rad experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, child in Childbirth in the 18th century was significantly less rad. Anytime a woman had any complications, the pregnancy turned from dangerous to extremely dangerous because there just weren't many options for them when things went wrong. So for example, if a baby was in a breech position, which is when the legs are out first instead of the head, making it likely that the head could get stuck, or if the shoulders are sort of trapped, there were no really options available like the cesarean section today that would safely protect the mother and the baby. And since there was no anesthesia then, doing something like a cesarean section was just really like not acceptable. So originally what doctors would do in that case would be to literally cut with a sharp knife, no anesthesia again, the cartilage and pelvic bone area that would literally open up the pelvis to make it wider enough for the baby's legs or shoulders um, to get through. Yeah. What? This is correct. Yes. This procedure if you could call it a procedure, I guess, was called a symphiostomy. So, yeah, that existed, and doctors did it. And <laughs> Wait, so this is like a more extreme version of an episiotomy, right? Mm. An episiotomy being the procedure that used to be super popular and isn't anymore, where you, right, because, like, your vagina tears when you give birth because babies mm-hmm. are oh, too big. Right, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. So, like, the idea is that you just preemptively cut the vagina open to make room for the baby. So this is that, but, like, bone. That with bone, because you're basically oh, trying to God. open up, like, the pelvis to get that baby's legs and mm-hmm. shoulder and oh, head out. God. Yeah, I so... I feel physically ill. <laughs> I was, I was, I practiced this, so I'm less ill now, but... Yes. So what doctors were realizing, unsurprisingly, that using a super sharp knife was painful and barbaric. They also noted that for them personally, it was also extremely time consuming as well. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) What a tragedy for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So these two surgeons at the time in Scotland were like, we're going to come up with a better version of this barbaric procedure. So John... Atkin and James Jeffrey developed basically a chainsaw, which consisted of a long chain with a line of serrated teeth. And at the other end of that serrated teeth, the device had a handle that the doctors would pull and they would insert that into a woman's pelvis and the chain would wrap around the pelvic bone and a doctor would pull steadily to tear at the bone. Oh this my would, god, Claire. Okay, I'm almost done. I'm almost oh done. I'm almost done. Okay. This would make slices. So uh, essentially what they said was that it was a more accurate and precise so it would lead to less like bleeding complications and for them it was easier. Yeah. So they patented that. And in a 2004 article in the Scottish Medical Journal that like took a historical look at this, they note that Jeffrey explained that the chainsaw would allow a smaller wound and protect the adjacent neurovascular bundle, while a heroic concept, he called it, symphiostomy had too many complications for most obstetricians, but 
regardless, his ideas still became accepted. So they still used it and they made a 100% switch from the knife procedure to chainsaw procedure. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's more. Don't worry. Oh, okay. I also have a picture um, that no. I can pass around and put on puffside.com slash weird. Oh God! Yeah, That's so it exactly looks um, <laughs> basically like a mix between a chainsaw mm. and one of those really old-fashioned like egg beaters. Yeah, I know that because I got one in my stocking for Christmas from my. <laughs> I, I hope you mean an egg beater, and <laughs> not, not a pelvic or, chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, no egg beater. Oh God! <clears throat> yeah. So then they go on to note that the mechanized versions of the chainsaw were developed, but in the later 19th century, that was superseded in surgery by the giggly twisted wire saw, which is even worse. Where it was basically like a very sharp wire that would do similar. Oh God! Like a big things. cheese cutter. Uh, <laughs> yes, Sarah. Yes. Oh. God, this just yeah. gets worse and worse. It, it when really, did we really stop? Does. Okay, Keep so your kitchen implements <laughs> and power tools when away did, from my uterus. When did we stop literally just slicing women open? Yeah, I'm uh, definitely getting to that. We're near <laughs> we're closing in on the oh finish of this chapter of history. So for much of the 19th century, the chain was the like go-to procedure. Thankfully... Once anesthesia was perfected, uh, the chainsaw was replaced with C-sections, which are still, I, in my opinion, and many others, very traumatic. Not that I've had one, but yeah, I just think they're traumatic and have far less consequences than the chainsaw method. So definitely safer, but still really like a severe procedure. And so if you're curious now when it switched from cutting pelvic bone to slicing through trees. Um, <laughs> it wasn't until 1905 when this guy named Samuel Benz of San Francisco needed to cut down some giant redwoods. And he was like, <laughs> he knew of this thing, supposedly. These, this, this is hard to parse through. There were like many different uh, origin stories. Origin, exactly. Yeah. But this is how this one goes. And then the first portable chainsaw was developed and patented in 1918 by this other guy. So uh, they made the grand switch to trees, which think how thank violent God. it must birth must have been that a man <clears throat> was like, you know what tool I could use to cut down a redwood tree <laughs> yeah. is that thing we use to slice open women. Yeah, yeah. So as I was, yeah, I was trying to think of like a good concluding sentence or concluding thought. Rather, I was like, well. This would never have happened if there were women obstetricians in the 18th yes. century. Yeah. Well, if, you know, we had like, oh there were like midwives who would like try to rotate a breech baby, which mm -hmm. is like really painful, but sometimes possible. But yeah, <laughs> like, you know, it was the the like intersection of, of like surgery and childbirth made for some really grisly solutions to genuine problems. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, birth is not... It is, like, risky. Mm -hmm. Amazingly yeah. risky for a thing that we have to do to survive as a species. But, God. Yeah. It, this, yeah. This discussion was traumatic for me. <laughs> I'm really sorry. But luckily today we have anesthesia for surgery. That's yeah. true. <laughs> Which oh is God. so much better. They'll knock you out before... So uh, you just don't remember anything. ...turning a chainsaw on you. So exactly. there's that. Yeah. Although, do we use anesthesia during C-sections a lot? I don't think you do because I think you're awake for... Yeah, you get right? a... a mm -hmm. What's it called? Epidural. Epidural, Epidural. yeah. Which numbs you. So. Uh, that actually freaks me out a little bit more. Same. The idea that I you're like... I watched, I watched one once and it was 
crazy that she was just like awake and then you go on the other side of the curtain and you're like, oh my God, there's <laughs> your, your intestines. Yeah, yeah your guts God. are out. Whoa. <laughs> Boy, birth well, is crazy. on that note, <laughs> that was my fact for the week. It was great. Um, horrifying and wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for that, Claire. We're going to take welcome. a quick break, and then we'll be back with Sarah's fact. Okay, we're back. And Sarah, you're going to talk about having a choice in, in, when, in 2020. when one gets pregnant yeah so and um, <laughs> oh god yeah so over the holidays i was uh i was on vacation in malawi which is in southern africa and we went on a little safari saw lots of animals and as we were going around our guide was you know chatting to us about all the little animals telling us facts about them and one fact that he just real casually pulled out is that impalas when they're pregnant if there's not enough food or water around they just keep the baby inside of them for longer until it's at the right time. And <laughs> I great. was like, hmm, that seems crazy, like possibly untrue. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went home and I Googled it thinking that it was going to be like, ah, this is a myth that everybody believes. And it turns out he may not have been exactly correct, but he's not that wrong either. You don't just impala's. I actually couldn't find anything specific about impals, but it turns out that like more than 100 species of mammal are able to delay giving birth if they want to. It's just not happening at the end. Like they don't have like fully formed right. babies. Which seems, it yeah, would that, be impractical. Exactly. You would be Why still would you needing all the energy that you would need. Exactly. Yeah. But it turns out there's tons of other ways that you can delay getting pregnant after you have had sex. So it's called delayed implantation or embryonic diapause, and there's tons of ways to do it. You can stash the sperm just for later use, Mm -hmm. keep it hanging around. You can fertilize the eggs and then just keep them hanging out. You can even have, like, the zygote implant and then just go dormant for a while. Just just keep it in there and for safekeeping. And it turns out this is how, like, many of the mammals that— you know, like mate and give birth in one season. Mm. Like mm. part of that is just like there is a mating season and it's reasonably short. And so like the babies tend to be born at the same time. But part of it is that a lot of those animals like synchronize when they give birth. So they wow. just wait to get pregnant. Even after they've had sex, they wait for the right moment so that later they all the give right birth moment. at once. I'm not <laughs> just ready. at the right time for me. So I just, I thought this was wild. Like there's a bunch of reasons. It's not totally clear exactly why some animals seem to do it and some animals don't but there's lots of good reasons to do it like if all your babies are born at once it means that fewer predators will eat your babies statistically (laughs) because there's lots of them but it also means that like you can really synchronize when you give birth and when you mate those are often like very closely tied like you give birth and then you mate right away because all the animals are around all the males are Mm. there And then another reason is, like, pretty much what our lovely guide told us, which is if there is not enough food or if the weather sucks, like winter is lasting a particularly long time, you can just delay when you get pregnant until it's going to be more convenient and more conducive to having babies running around. And it's also a way for, as we we alluded to at the beginning, for the ladies to exert a little choice, which they often do not have in the animal world. So how long can they delay it for? 
Yeah, so it varies a lot. And I was initially thinking, like, surely it would only be, like, a few weeks. But some of them are, like, delaying for as long as their pregnancies. Like, the California leaf-nosed bat delays for four and a half months and then is pregnant for four. <laughs> and wow. long-tailed weasels delay their implantation for seven to nine months and then are pregnant for another nine and a half months. That's amazing. Which is a really... It's an incredibly long time between when you got inseminated and when you actually gave birth to yeah, a baby. Like, who could even remember? <laughs> <laughs> Weasels have no idea who the dad is, I guess. Mm-hmm. There were there were just some insane stories. So, like, I found one. Cause, so, sometimes the delay is that you basically, like, mate in the fall mm-hmm. and then you wait to get pregnant until the following spring. Because Uh, the winter is too dangerous of a time. Exactly. Especially if you are an animal that hibernates, Mm -hmm. like bats. Hmm. So I found out that little brown bats, which is literally their name, that's not just me describing them, (laughs) they hibernate during the winter and they mate just before hibernation. And horrifyingly, a lot of the time, the females, when the, the females when they're awake, are quite promiscuous. They have sex with lots of other little batmen. That was unintentional. (laughs) Um, But at a certain point, they go into a torpid state because they're hibernating. And so they're not really aware of what's happening. And a lot of the time, the males are still active. And so they mate with whatever bats they want. That's great. Which is great. Although, interestingly, 35% of their matings are with other males. So they're really indiscriminate. They just go for whoever is there. Nothing personal. No, it's just they're just finding who's, who's around. And then the females store the sperm all winter, and then they get pregnant in the spring. But part of the the theory behind why they might do that is that given that a lot of the time they don't have a choice with what males they're mating with because they are basically asleep, that it affords them the opportunity to choose which sperm they want to use. So, like, they wake up and have... Lots of sperm, and they get to pick which one actually gets them pregnant in the end. So it's called cryptic female choice because ladies are so cryptic. <laughs> but it's like the general term for the various ways in which female animals can choose which sperm get to survive. And like sometimes it is literally choosing. So like red flower beetles have multiple little pockets where they can store the sperm, and then the female just picks which one she wants to use. There's a type of nursery web spider that does that too, and she stores more sperm from the males that give her nuptial gifts. Mm. So your chances of passing on your genes as a man are related to how nice you are to the lady spider. Also, on a sadder note, galadas, I'm not saying that correctly, but it's a type of monkey, if they mate with a dominant male and then that male gets overthrown by a younger male, they can voluntarily abort their babies partway through the pregnancy. The theory being that, like, if the new male has all these babies who are born from this previous male, that he will commit infanticide. Mm. So they basically, like, preempt that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not a great world out there for lady animals for the yeah, most part. No. So not every mammal does this, but there is a theory that, ever, like, pretty much every mammal could do it, that it's a conserved evolutionary mechanism and maybe you just don't need to implement it, but you have the ability. So to test that, some scientists took some sheep embryos and then put them into mouse uteri and, uh, like, specifically uteri that were basically hormonally, like, unreceptive to being pregnant Mm because mice can go through embryonic diapause, but sheep cannot. I see. So Mm -hmm. by putting the sheep embryos in, they basically force the embryos to go into diapause, even though they shouldn't be able to do that. And then when they took them back out, like days later, they could turn into normal sheep embryo, seemingly. In some cases, the ones that go into diapause like are actually healthier. 
Like, they seem to produce healthier offspring and, like, actually continue to go on to be babies at higher rates, basically. Mm -hmm. And you can do the same thing with rabbit and cow blastocysts put into mice, which I think really (laughs) emphasizes just how small just fertilized eggs are that you could put a cow blastocyst (laughs) into a mouse. There's even, there's a case study they found of, but basically a human woman experiencing this as well. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Can yeah. humans do it? Yes, there are like definitely researchers who think that humans could do it and that it might not be as uncommon as we think. It's just like you so rarely know exactly when mm. you got pregnant and then mm. like exactly when. Mm. So it's hard to trace. But there was this woman who was undergoing IVF and got the oocytes transferred in November and then, like, at the end of November was confirmed that she was not pregnant. And she had had sex apparently once, like, during that same period after she got the oocytes, but before she was confirmed to not be pregnant. Mm-hmm. And then at the beginning of January, they realized that she was actually pregnant because she kept calling the hospital basically <laughs> and saying, like, I've not, I haven't gotten my period and I'm very nauseated all the time. Yeah. And they were like, but you're not pregnant. Don't worry about it. And it turns out she was pregnant. She had, like, a normal pregnancy. It was just delayed about a month since she got the implantation. Wow. And the theory was, like, it just, like, there was nothing wrong with the baby. It didn't seem to have actually been in development longer than normal. It was just delayed. Just a little late. Wow. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's uncommon, but, like, apparently we might be able to do it. There and it is, might be more common than we think. We just don't know. We can't track. Like, yeah, I mean, we track IVF because it's so like exactly. regimented. But yeah, so the theory is like a like stress basically could have a really big mm. impact on whether you actually can implant a fertilized egg. So there's like actually a lot of there's some substantial research about how one of the things like when you undergo IVF, it shouldn't just be like pumping you full of hormones. It should mm-hmm. also be like reducing your stress because right. it massively right. increases your likelihood of getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Don't be stressed. Don't think about the chainsaw. Don't think about how horrifying <laughs> pregnancy and birth are in so many ways. Just focus on the baby. The I guess. baby. Yeah. Wow. That's my tale. I love that. Wow. Slightly happier than the chainsaw. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> happier bit. than the chainsaw. What was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Mine was the chainsaw. It was so upsetting. <laughs> yeah. The chainsaw was quite upsetting. I'm and actually, sorry. well, and I have to admit that, like, I, I knew. That chainsaws were invented for childbirth because a friend of mine who's in medical school, hi Josh, sent that to me a while ago. But I had never done any research on it, and it was so much more horrifying (laughs) than even I took away from just, like, the basic chainsaws were used in labor and delivery. So Yeah, I apologize. That's the most upsetting thing I learned Cool. (laughs) The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editors, Jess Bodie and Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, Tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, 
it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.